This week on WealthTrack, the value of non-consensus investing. Rupal Bansali wrote a book about it and is a practitioner of the art. Aerial Investments Head of International and Global Equities is next on Consuelo Mack WealthTrack. Funding provided by Morgan Le Fay Dreams Foundation, Clearbridge Investments, a Leg Mason company, Miller Value Funds, Royce and Associates, Matthews Asia, First Eagle Investment Management, Strategus Asset Management, and Eaton Vance. Hello and welcome to this edition of Wealth Track. I'm Consuelo Mack. The belief that the last shall be first and the first last comes from the Gospel of Matthew in the New Testament, quoting Jesus, who is referring to one's place in the kingdom of heaven. But the last shall be first and the first last has down-to-earth applications in the markets as well. As we have reported in recent episodes, the worst performers in one market cycle frequently rise to the top in the next and vice versa. The principle applies across investment styles, asset classes, and sectors as they go in and out of favor. In the current market cycle dating from 2009, coming out of the great financial crisis, equities dominated bonds and commodities. U.S. trumped international, growth outpaced value, and large U.S. tech companies dominated just about every sector and security. As in previous bull market periods, money flows to the best performers and flees the laggards. This record-setting U.S. bull market has also accentuated the attraction of index investing, as mutual funds and ETFs, based on the S&P 500 in particular, have been among the decade's stars. It's been a challenging period for active managers, especially those focused on value investing and international markets. This week's guest checks off all of those boxes, but remains a fierce advocate for all three approaches. She is Rupal Bansali, Chief Investment Officer of International and Global Equities at Aerial Investments, a well-respected, value-oriented firm known for its tortoise mascot and slow and steady wins the race motto. A veteran international investor, Bansali joined the firm in 2011 to build its global investment capabilities, which she has done. She now oversees more than half of Ariel's $13 billion in assets. Bansali launched her flagship Ariel International Fund in 2011. Since then, the fund has slightly underperformed its international benchmark. However, it has done well during downturns. One reason it has earned a bronze Morningstar analyst rating. Bansali, a panelist on Barron's prestigious annual Outlook Roundtable, is also a new author. Her book, Non-Consensus Investing, Being Right When Everyone Else is Wrong, describes her personal and professional development as a skilled practitioner of what she calls non-consensus investing. What does that mean? That is where we started the interview. Well, I think um, in most things in life, if you get the answer correct, uh, you're off to the races. You know, that's all it takes to be successful. But in investing, if your answer is correct, but it is consensus, there's no money to be made because it's already in the price. So when you think about investing, by definition, you have to be a non-consensus thinker, and which means you must have a different point of view as to what is misunderstood in the security and therefore why it's mispriced. Because if it is well understood, it's probably well priced and there's no money to be made. So that's the meaning of non-consensus investing is to have a different fundamental point of view that you can arbitrage to make money for your clients. So is it the same as contrarian investing? 
specifically, I did not call my book non, I, I called it non-consensus right. investing and not contrarian investing because I think contrarian investing often devolves into deep value investing mm -hmm. or right. in fact even distressed investing. And I think that's a very risky form of investing. I believe that there is a way to secure returns without taking too much risk. And that's what I mean by non-consensus investing, where if failure is priced in, but success is not, right. uh, that allows you to get the returns, but without taking too much risk. So as a value investor, because you asked that question too, which I think is a great one, right. I am an intrinsic value investor, which means I care about what I get, not just what I pay. So, you know, right now we are in, are in an era that is rewarding growth and um, and tell we're, me about I don't, it. exactly <laughs> momentum, all of those things. And, and you kind of kiddingly say that non-consensus consensus investors are guilty until proven right. Is that really the way it is right now? Well, uh, that is correct. Uh -huh. uh, in non-consensus <laughs> investors, till your non-consensus point of view becomes consensus, you're guilty till proven innocent, right, which is the right. opposite of what human beings are used to. Um, I think to back up and, and understand what's going on in the markets, you know, we can call it growth investing, we can call it momentum investing, but essentially uh, what, what underpins all of that mm -hmm. is this epic battle between formulaic investors and fundamental investors. And the formulaic investors are the ones who, who invest passively or through quant. Mm -hmm. You know, they have a formulaic approach to investing. Right. So and, they've got their quant models. That's for a quant instance, models, and, for example, a formulaic. Makes the list and makes, that's right. Right. And, and passive, you know, sell. invest based on the formula of whichever right. is the largest market cap stock, you know, gets the biggest weight in the index and you just invest proportionately. So it's a formulaic approach mm -hmm. to investing. Mm -hmm. And this epic battle is none other than, you know, the formulaic investors have received most of the money flows mm -hmm. and a very important variable in formulaic investing, a very important factor driving returns of that uh, way of investing is momentum. Mm -hmm. And so if growth is working, they just keep putting more money into growth sure. stocks. And, and it so does before work. you know it, it becomes momentum investing. Right. I think most of your viewers would be surprised to know that in the last couple of years, there's actually not been a higher growth rate for the growth stocks. Mm -hmm. People think a growth stock should have a higher growth rate. The value a stocks in the growth, growth rates in earnings, for example, earnings, than, than the value, value stocks. stocks. Okay. And yet we pay up for it. Right. So we are paying more and getting less, you know? Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, value stocks have steady growth, they may not have heady growth, but you don't have to pay up for them. Mm -hmm. So I think that this epic battle is one where the flow of money is dictating the level of the market. Right. I call it not a market level, but a manipulated level. Mm -hmm. Because in addition to these flows, you've got the flow of money coming from the Fed. You know, QE-led yes. flow of money into risky assets. So it's become a confluence of three things. Growth investing, risky investing, momentum investing, flow-based investing, formulaic investing, all of these are conspiring to take markets up to levels which are not justified by fundamentals. Right. And so, so when so, that reset so occurs... When, when do we have to pay the piper, is, is, I guess is my, my question, because these, you know, these trends can last for a very long time, and they have, in fact, lasted for you know, 11 years in this situation. And we've never had a situation where, where we have had the kind of monetary policies that we've got from central banks. And we've never had a situation where you have the, the flow into these passive index funds. Those two forces, which are very powerful, are brand new. So is it possible that they can actually carry this, you know, this trend, I mean, much farther than, you know, than is rational, but nonetheless, if you're in it, you're making money. 
Uh, yes. I think what is unusual about this run right. is not that the pendulum doesn't swing far. It often does and it always does. Yes. That it's lasted so long. But you're exactly right. The reason it's lasted so long is because of the Fed put. You know, every right. time the market catches a cold, uh, they release then, more money to the system yeah. and that sort of helps, you know, boost the, again, uh, we call it asset price inflation because mm -hmm. that's what it is. Mm -hmm. So the way this party could come to an end, because, you know, clearly it's gone on for a long time, yes. is either inflation, uh, you know, takes hold. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, I think people don't realize inflation is already taking hold. The reason the core CPI, which people believe is hovering around 2% in the U.S., you know, is a pretty tame number because that's a target and, you know, it's 2% right, and right. sometimes below. But if you actually look at wage inflation, it's running at three and a quarter percent. Mm -hmm. If you parse the core CPI into services inflation and goods inflation, services inflation is running at 4%. All right. Goods inflation is at zero. Right. Exactly. You know, we are in a service economy. We don't care if the microwave costs $50 less. Mm -hmm. You know, that's not where we are spending the money. Manufactured goods is not where it is. But if our healthcare costs, our rental costs go up, which is exactly, you know, the pain being felt right. by the large majority of the population in this country, it's a service cost inflation. So actually, inflation already exists in the marketplace, but we're not paying enough attention to it. Mm -hmm. And that can come back to haunt. Mm -hmm. So that's one part. But the other thing is, there's also a corporate debt binge. And a yes. lot of these growth companies have grown, not organically, but through acquisition or by borrowing money and buying back shares. We call that financial engineering. Mm -hmm. So I think all that, that kind of behavior can only go on for so long. Now, I appreciate, you know, when it's gone on for so long, there's a tendency to believe it'll go on forever. Right. But that's what people thought about the NASDAQ, you know, back in 1997, all the way to 2000, that there was a new paradigm that, you know, we've never going to go back to the old days. And the Internet, you know, was a way to invest. Mm -hmm. And the NASDAQ went up fivefold only to crash you know, 80% in three years hence. Right. Emerging markets went through that phase. We should not forget there was a fetish for owning emerging market stocks, you know, in the mid 2000s, right? Because the stock market did extremely well mm -hmm. in that region and people overstayed their welcome. You look at the last 10 years, emerging markets have completely underperformed the S&P 500, yes. right? And so I think these things go in cycles. We have to be very alert where we are in the early innings of a cycle versus the late innings. I can tell you we are very much in the late innings. One factoid to validate that point is uh -huh. the value versus growth uh, spectrum in terms of divergence of valuation premiums, it's at the highest ever of growth trading at a premium to value back to where it was in 1999. Wow. And remember back then two people said, you never want to invest in value stocks. Who wants to invest in the old economy? It's all about the new economy. And guess what? The decade that followed was all about old economy mm -hmm. stocks doing well. Real estate, railroads, resources, right? Uh, and I think that's kind of how the pendulum swings. So you want to be ahead of that curve, not behind the curve. And I think the inflection point is at hand as we speak because of this extreme divergence of valuations that has all emerged. Right. All right. How should we manage our expectations and our emotions as investors right now? I think in investing, it is very important to understand that you need to lose the battle to win the war. The war is about absolute capital appreciation mm -hmm. in the long run. Uh, the battle is relative performance versus a benchmark. And, and I think that's the dichotomy. In order to compound your capital in the long run, sometimes you need to step aside, you know, when the music is playing and everybody's dancing and get off that party floor because you've overstayed your welcome. Right. And that's kind of what I'm recommending. So I think when it comes to managing emotions is to understand that the long term can be very different from the short term. So to have that patient horizon to make sure that you're always fighting the war and not trying to win the battle mm -hmm. is an important emotional construct. You know, when you engage in any sport, you need to understand the rules of the game. And what is different about investing is if you get the answer correct, 
but your correct answer is consensus, there is no money to be made. Mm -hmm. People don't realize that. They think, oh, I got this correct. You know, I thought Apple would report 10 bucks of earnings and Apple reported 10 bucks of earnings. Well, but if everybody expected Apple to report 10 bucks of earnings, the stock is not going to move. But that's late in a cycle. I mean, I'm just, I'm, yeah, you know, sure. I'm wondering kind of early, earlier in a cycle when I look at, you know, for instance, how well the fangs have performed. Yes. And everyone, of course, is saying, you know, why wasn't I there, you know, at, at Amazon's IPO and Google's IPO, whatever. Uh, and they weren't there because it's, it was a very difficult run until recently. I think, but, yes, I think when concepts right. prove to be successful, everybody wishes they invest in the concepts. Yes. And I would say there's a big distinction between investing in concepts and investing in companies. Investing in concepts is high return, high risk. When it works out, you know, the mm -hmm. high risk pays for itself. When it doesn't work out, like it happened in the NASDAQ, in the late 1990s, right. you lost all your money. Mm -hmm. That's playing Russian roulette in my view. Mm -hmm. That's speculation, that is not investing. They're not proven. Companies, on the other hand, are proven business models, and as long as you can wait out, you know, you can endure uh, the, the times that they have temporary difficulties, mm -hmm. you have light at the end of the tunnel. Because they've got different time periods when they've been stress tested, time tested, and this is the notion of anti-fragile investing. Right. So at, so at Ariel, you're, you're going to be looking for companies that have that proven resilience. Exactly. And have gone, have been stress tested. So you're not going to be going into the new IPOs or whatever, you know, by design. That's right. Okay. In fact, let me tell you, mm -hmm. in the last decade, and I just go back to the last decade because it's 2001, 2011, where I was at a different employer and I have my track record. Right. And during that time, the biggest money was made by going long the super cycle in commodities. Mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. didn't own the commodities. I didn't. I didn't own the best performing sector in the market right. and yet my performance was great. So you don't have to own you know, the stuff that everybody else owns. Mm -hmm. In fact, the crowded trade is often the riskiest trade. Uh, and yes, it's very tempting to say if only I got into the early innings, mm -hmm. but here I'm giving you advice as to how you get into the early innings of value investing, of early innings of perhaps even putting now money to work in emerging markets. So to build what I'm calling a foresight portfolio, not a hindsight portfolio, right. but it's extremely hard for human beings to do because they cannot look ahead, but the, the past is very tangible. Right, and, and, and Morningstar fact, actually says your downside capture, for exactly, instance, is that is, you protect in down markets. Exactly. Right. You know, we kick into high gear when you need us the most, when right. the market is crashing. Right, and, and that's, that, that's another kind of one, of one of your principles is that not losing money is as important as making it, if not more so. So you're, you're winning by not losing. That's, that is the essential ingredient of investing. Yeah, the way for you. For actually, everybody Everyone. should pay attention to risk yes. management. Yes. In fact, risk management should precede return management. Mm -hmm. If you lose less, you always end up making more. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about you know where you intend to make money now, and and you have a it's a you know a, a clever kind of strategy that you're advocating is basically abandon the fangs and buy the mangs. Yes. So let's let's talk about the, the mangs, that that strategy. And and I will I'll say so that you know M is Michelin, uh, the A is Ahold, uh, and the N is NTT Docomo and the G is GlaxoSmithKline. So so tell us why you think the mangs um, are the are where we should be in the future. So um 
I told you earlier that you know you need to have a known consensus point of view to make money in this market, right. uh, in any market. Mm -hmm. and, and one of the things that people would love to want in this market is consumer staples, right? Uh, but however, consumer staples like Procter and Gamble and, and Unilever, etc., are quite expensive right. because everybody knows them to be high-quality franchises, and therefore, you know, the price of the mm -hmm. stock is set accordingly. What if I told you that all of these Mang stocks are actually consumer staple companies, mm -hmm. but masquerading as consumer discretionary companies? So this is an example of where people have misunderstood what these companies are really about and therefore are undervaluing them because they don't get what they're truly about. Take Michelin, for example. Mm -hmm. It is a tire, tire company. company. Right. And typically, you know, the tire companies are classified under the auto industry in the benchmarks, so and so they're consumer cyclical. discretionary. Mm -hmm. And consumer discretionary is out of favor, you know, of course, because the economy is slowing. And yet, think about it. It is not discretionary to have to replace your tire. Every couple of years, every couple of thousand miles, you have no discretion, you're going to have to replace it. That's a consumer staple. You have no choice in the matter. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is an example of something that's masquerading as consumer discretionary, but is actually a consumer staple. For a stock like Michelin, you only have to pay about 10 times earnings, and you can clip a coupon of 3.5% dividend yields. This is in Europe, uh, where the 10-year bond rates are negative in many instances. So this is a way you can get high returns, mm -hmm. which is you know very healthy dividend income, which will grow over time because their earnings are expected to grow, and yet you don't have to pay up for it on 10 times earnings. Right. So let's go, let's go through sure. the mangs, too. So Ahold, which is a, a food Dutch retailer, food a Dutch, retailer, right. but it's also a U.S. food retailer. Yes. So and it's not and recognized. Shop. Stop and Shop mm -hmm. is in the entire Northeast, and Peapod, uh -huh. which is their online delivery, uh, fresh grocery platform. Again, yes. you think of grocery stores as very low-margin, slow-growing, um, what's, what's the deal with Ahold? Why? So the non-consensus uh, point of view there is that it is absolutely true. It's a very mature business. Uh, I would not dispute that. It's also a very low growth business, therefore. Right. However, you can look at growth on multiple vectors. It will not have a lot of top line growth, sales growth, or earnings growth, but it does have a lot of free cash flow growth. Because the good news in mature industries is you don't have to reinvest in them as much. So they become cash cows. And that cash cow means I get a high dividend yield. Mm -hmm. So as long as I can keep clipping that coupon, literally, right. Uh, of a dividend yield, and roughly the dividend yields in the vicinity of 3.5%. And then they also tend to do share buybacks. So between the two things, I can almost get 5% returns on my capital, so which is a very compelling number. So even with disruption that Amazon's bringing to the grocery space, even with Walmart as well, so and Ahold with the Stop and Shop, which of course I'm familiar in with the because Northeast. I'm from the New England area, yes. yeah. Um, so it's a myth that Amazon yes. is actually able to compete with uh, Ahold in the mm -hmm. grocery retailing business. In fact, look at what Amazon did. They used to have their own grocery business. They closed it down and they acquired Whole Foods, which mm -hmm. is nothing but a brick and mortar operation. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is a recognition that the supply chain of a food operation is fundamentally different and distinctive compared to ambient products. So you can ship, you know, a pair of apparels, a pair of shoes, books, right. whatever it is, uh, through any distribution warehouse uh, structure that Amazon has. You cannot ship food. Because food is perishable, mm -hmm. and it requires a frozen section, a chill section, even the trucks. So it's a very distinct and different supply chain, which Peapod, which has been doing this for 15 years, mm -hmm. has mastered. Mm -hmm. Whole Foods does not even have that. So I'm always looking for value, and Stop and Shop is value. It's quality at the right price. You can always get quality at a high price, but why? <laughs> Pay up for something. Uh, the N in Mang, NTT Docomo, telecom company. So telecoms is a new Japanese. consumer staple. It is a Japanese right. company, coincidentally, but mm -hmm. you know there are lots of wireless telecoms in the world. Right. I own some companies in Germany, in Switzerland, in the U.S., uh, Verizon, for example, but also Docomo. Entity Docomo 
uh, is a example of a company where it is, you know, services as a subscription. The kind of business model that people love in Netflix and Salesforce.com in this country, because we pay monthly bills, you know, for those services. Well, telecoms the same way. You pay the monthly bill. And the, the service that you get, which is a wireless, you know, your cell phone, smartphone usage, it's not going to go down or you're not, not going to pay your bills in a downturn or if you lose your job. Uh, and so to me, it is a consumer staple from that standpoint, which is why I call telecoms as the new consumer staple. Right. And here you can get a company that is generating a lot of free cash flows because the myth in the market is that telecoms is a very capital intensive business. Yes, it is in the early innings because you're still laying out the network. But once you've laid it out, the incremental spend that you have to make is far lower, which means you become a gusher of cash flows, mm -hmm. which comes back to you. So the dividend yield I get on, on Entity Docomo, uh, you know, when I first bought it, it was closer to five, five and a half percent. Now it's four, still very compelling in Japanese yen, which is a strong currency, mm -hmm. where the interest rates are zero. So that is the kind of value you can have in this market. So the G is GlaxoSmithKline, a large pharma company. Again, Correct. pharma has been tainted. Yes. Yes. So ex explain why GlaxoSmithKline. So typically a lot of undervalued stocks, you know, tend to have some cloud over them, right? Mm -hmm. Which is actually what I look for because if they're a great quality franchise, but people are afraid about bad news, usually it's already in the price, which means even if it happens, I don't have to worry too much about it falling because it's always in the price. So failure is priced in, but success is not. So here's how Glaxo is actually, again, another example of a consumer staple in disguise. Within the pharma business, the key drugs are in respiratory, uh, especially Advair, which is an asthma. You know, asthma, unfortunately, is a chronic condition. You have to manage it lifelong, yes. which means, and there is no choice in taking your asthma medication. And so Glaxo has the leading asthma Leading medication? asthma medication, right. respiratory medications. And then they have a vaccines business. Again, this is a way to play the higher birth rate in emerging markets. Because, you know, vaccines are predominantly given to children mm -hmm. and the birth mm -hmm. rate is very high in emerging markets. So this is a stealth way and it's a staple. Every year you have to, you know, you have to take those vaccinations. Uh, and then the third business they have literally is a consumer staple business. You know, they make toothpaste and they have, mm -hmm. you know, pain medication like uh, uh, the equivalent of ibuprofen, you know, which we call Advil here, which is a different company. But in right. Europe, uh, people in America may not be familiar with the brands, but Aquafresh toothpaste is their toothpaste, for example. Oh, okay. So that's the three-legged stool all of which has very consumer staplish characteristics, but they don't trade on consumer staplish multiples. And here again is a company in the UK, multinational company, where you can clip a coupon of four and a half percent. So I, I, you know, I can't leave this discussion without addressing the fangs. Yes. So w which fang do you think is the most at risk? Netflix. Netflix. Why? Because um, people have assumed that it has a competitive advantage. Uh, and, and it's got a subscription revenue model, which means it's a very sticky consumer model. Mm -hmm. And both of those things are likely to get upended. First of all, content is sticky. The mm -hmm. platform is not. If you watch you know, certain shows on Netflix, uh, and if those shows are pulled because they don't own those shows, they belong to someone else, mm -hmm. like Disney, who is about to pull those shows, well, you're going to switch to Disney to watch those shows. You're agnostic where you watch them. It's a show that you care about, not the platform. The second concern that I have about Netflix is, they have upped the ante in terms of paying up for content. Let's now, talk about a, a possible potential future success, which would be the one investment for a long-term diversified portfolio. What would you have all of us own in a very diversified long-term portfolio? So I'm glad you're asking me about stock picking because people think that's dead, you know, active investing. Mm -hmm. And I'm a big believer that for every bogle head, there needs to be a contrarian head. So here's my contrarian hat on. Mm -hmm. I think the best investment idea I can recommend on a single security basis is China Mobile. Huh. It is the leading wireless carrier in China with 
900 million subscribers. Just think of the sheer size of that customer base, right? right? And not and, a lot of competition. And not a lot of competition right. because they have 66% market share. The other two companies have only 33% market share combined. Uh, and because it's a scale business, you know, the, the biggest company makes the most money. Right. And this is a company that has a net cash balance sheet, which is beautiful in a world that is, you know, imploding on debt, I believe, uh, and, and gorging on debt. So 35%, you know, net cash to market cap, 10 times earnings, and a 4.5% dividend yield. You know how I like my growth, my undervaluation, yes, and my resilient balance sheet, and a great business model? Uh, this one is it. All right, terrific. Rupal Bansali, thank you so much for joining us on WealthTrack, and congratulations on your new book, Non-Consensus Investing. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. At the close of every wealth track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is give your portfolio a non-consensus investing review. The goal is to see where it's most vulnerable to declines. The highest risk areas are those that have appreciated the most, but the fundamentals have not kept up. A case in point is the S&P 500. The index advanced 29% last year, but earnings growth was in the low single digits. Bansali mentioned another dramatic gap. By some basic valuation measures, the difference between global value and global growth stocks has broken through the tech bubble peak. Financial history shows us that extreme appreciation can lead to a dramatic depreciation and losses are difficult to recover from. Loss-proofing your portfolio is appropriate at this extended stage of a bull market. Well, next week, we look at ensuring yourself a secure retirement with insurance expert Kim Lankford. In this week's extra feature, Rupal Bansali reveals her inspiring motives for writing non-consensus investing. You keep us motivated by connecting with us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us. We hope you are able to enjoy a long President's Day weekend. Make the week ahead a profitable and a productive one.